and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Roz Taylor. On the podcast this week, the sleaze revelations may be ebbing, but the PM is still under sustained attack from his own MPs. Would a bouncing new Johnson baby be enough to save Christmas for the Conservatives? We talk about what it's like to graduate into a post-COVID job market and generational tensions in the workplace. And the panel will be discussing the phenomenon of the lockdown dog. Are pets vital for our mental health? Or a catastrophe for the planet. All that and more on this week's bunker. Welcome back to the bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hi, Ros. Justin, if you live in Austria, which you don't, and you've been jabbed. It's bad news. You're back in lockdown anyway. If you haven't been jabbed, it's even worse. You've got to have the vaccination by February. There were big protests in Vienna at the weekend and riots in the Netherlands too, which has gone back into partial lockdown. Governments have blamed misinformation about vaccines. Is Austria doing the right thing in making the jab mandatory? Yeah, I would say I think they are. I mean, this is Austria's fourth national lockdown now since the pandemic began. Um, they're in a funny position as a country. I mean, only 65% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is a fairly low rate by European standards. I mean, the unrest this week has been really bad, you know, quite pronounced in the Netherlands specifically. Um, you know, the violence there in Rusendal in the south, uh, it looked really bad. But one thing that sort of struck me with this and to a lesser extent the demos in Austria is it isn't particularly like civil disobedience or principled objection that you're seeing. You know, in some of the Netherlands, it was things like, you know, shops being looted, a school being burned down. It's basically sort of violence and accelerationism for its own sake. And it feels like what they're grappling with in those countries is a slightly more pronounced version of what you've seen across various demos here over the summer, which seem to have trailed off a little bit at the moment. But where you've got that weird ecosystem of, various antisocial elements from the far right and the far left egged on by these sort of conflict entrepreneurs who broadly just want to undermine the state full stop. Um, And I think, you know, the proof of that was the way that even now lockdown has ended in this country. They've kept the demos going all through that period, even when there was no lockdown and ostensibly nothing to protest against at that point. So ultimately, I think what it actually reminded me of and what you're going to see playing out across these countries is sort of a version of, you know, what France had about 18 months ago with the Gilets Jaunes, where ultimately it's going to come down to a test of the state's authority versus hostile actors in the population and the state's ability to ensure the security of all its citizens, because that's the group you're not hearing from in this is, and I was talking to friends of mine in Brussels, who are saying, look, we're sick of being, you know, we don't want to be locked down again, but we feel like it's going to happen because there are people who have simply refused to do what's been asked of them for the last 18 months. And I think that's maybe the tension point you're really going to see opening up in these places. And those aren't the people who are going out and burning down schools and rioting. They're just quietly furious. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've seen it in some places in America where, you know, there's been, obviously everything always sort of feels like it's more kind of uh, more ramped up, but I think, you know, that hostility, if we go into another winter of people in these countries being told you've got to lock down again and the dialogue turns to we're having to do this because a significant sector of our neighbours and population are refusing to do what's asked of them, I think that's where you'll see things really fraying. Also back on the bunker, hello to freelancer, Westminster journalist and author, Marie Leconte. Hi, Marie. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just went hello before you even finish your sentence. Oh, hello. please do. <laughs> Marie, you wrote in the New Statesman this week that people in Westminster are drinking less. Is this so they can spend more time on their second jobs or is there another explanation? <laughs> I, th- I think it's a bit of a weird one because it's not... It Basically, what's going on is that the pubs in Westminster are empty and they should be, kind of including actually um, the terrace in Parliament. And and the slight question that I try to explore in the piece is actually, is it that people are drinking less or are they drinking differently or in kind of different places? And I'm still not entirely sure. So I think part of what happened was that um, the pubs in Westminster were very late to open back up over the summer. So I think all the kind of Westminster SW1 people who wanted to see each other again could not really go to, you know, the Red Line, the Westminster Arms, the two chairmen, all the kind of like classic political pubs. So ended up going elsewhere, you know, up the road, for example, in Soho, where they had the terraces, etc. So I think there's a bit of that. I think there's a bit of, again, and that's not unique to Westminster at all. I think that's the same up and down the country where... It was just quite hard to keep up, I think, with your acquaintances uh, during the kind of 18 months of lockdowns and sort of like semi-lockdowns, etc. So I think people are kind of spending more time in smaller groups, more closed off groups, instead of, again, kind of going to the big pubs and seeing who's there and having a sort of big night of chatting to everyone. But but I do think so what's kind of interesting about that, because people may be listening and not unreasonably thinking, you know, how does that, why should we care about this? But, but but it is, I think, you know, the social aspect of of Westminster is such a big part of uh, of British politics, really. And so it's unclear how that's going to affect, especially looking at MPs who normally you would kind of, again, informally see so each other, MPs from different parties, advisors, journalists, you know, think tank people, lobbyists, etc. If these chats are not happening, you know, w- w- what is going to happen to them? So I, I do think that is something um, yeah, w- worth keeping an eye on, certainly over the next few months. And the big news this weekend was that Andrew Marr is leaving the BBC. Where's he off to? Uh, he is off to LBC, I believe. And uh, my intel is, which is actually and quite funny, is maybe a bit mean, but it is quite funny. Uh, so apparently, I mean, A, people at LBC were not at Global were not told uh, of the move at all, so found out from Twitter. But also, as far as I can tell, no one knows what show he's going to take over. So there's basically every presenter on LBC is currently just having a slightly stressful time going, is it going to be me? Am I about to be replaced by Marl? And no one's been told anything. So yeah, so there you go. But although the one thing I'll say though, is I did find it quite refreshing. I think there was a piece in The Guardian today saying that one of the reasons why he was happy to be leaving is that he wants to talk a lot about the climate and kind of the importance of the environment, etc. And it just felt like a nice change because I felt like over the past few years, anytime anyone has left a job that was impartial, it was just to be very racist or like very transphobic or something. So I think it's just quite nice that for once, uh, it's someone who's quite happy he no longer has to be impartial for nice reasons. Our final guest today is comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello. Hello. You've been hanging out with Sadiq Khan recently, haven't you? I have, yes. Uh, my, my tiny mare son uh, came to my show at the Soho <laughs> Theatre uh, on the 13th of February and had a wonderful time. Tickets still on sale for the rest of the national tour, so uh, get that. But yes, always a, always a pleasure to have him in the audience, although there is always the sort of oddness of him being flanked by massive people uh, who are there to stop evildoers. Uh, so, but, but it's very nice to see him. Uh, did you talk with him about how to meet this £4 billion shortfall in fair revenue? <laughs> I mean, we of course did talk about the sort of situation that uh, he's in with central government. And I think it must just be a, a very, very difficult one because, you know, as as a mayor, you do have in some spheres quite extensive powers, but in others just deeply limited ones. 
particularly when we're dealing with a central government that seemed to be withholding funding from places mainly out of spite, you know, like, and this is not just a, a London thing. There are loads of sort of in the leveling up towns fund, places are getting bungs if they had voted Tory and not in the world. there's a lot of pork barrel stuff going on at the moment. Uh, so I think that it's, it's a really difficult situation for him and one that I hope does get sorted, though I fear won't, because, yeah, the success of London is the success of the country. Which tube line would you close down first, I hear? <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly would not be wanting to close the bank branch of the Northern Line, largely because my partner lives at one end of it and I live at the other. And it is going to mean that I uh, spend a lot more time on buses in the coming months. The sleaze revelations seem to have abated, but Boris Johnson is still floundering. On Monday, he gave a rambling speech to the CBI in which he extolled the wonders of Peppa Pig and compared himself to Moses. Marie, Johnson addressed a 1922 committee meeting last week after his time at the Liaison Committee. And according to Laura Kunzberg, one MP said he looked weak, sounded weak, his authority is evaporating. Is that what your sources are telling you? Um, Yes and no, because I think there's there's definitely lots of anger and frustration, I think, at um, Boris Johnson from Conservative MPs at the moment, in a way that, you know, had not been the case for a very long time. Um, And it's not just the usual suspects. It is people who would usually say, well, you know, he did win us the election, blah, 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 you know, or I want a job, so I'm not going to say anything. But actually, even those people are now grumbling. But that being said, I think what, what I'm finding quite interesting is that there's still not there's no massive chatter of he should be ousted or who should replace him. Because normally, I don't know, you, you sort of feel like this should be the stage where certain people in certain corners start maybe saying, oh, well, you know, I, I would quite like running or X would quite like running. or Wouldn't it be nice if Y could take the party in that direction, etc." And I feel like that's not quite happening yet. So there's definitely, again, yeah, tons of frustration. But I think that's it so far. So they're all keeping their powder dry for the moment. They are. But I think it's because it's also... Because of the election, the Parliamentary Conservative Party is so big now, which I know is kind of like stating the obvious. And so many of the MPs are new as well, and quite a lot of them are still kind of unknown quantities. So I think that if I were basically a member of any faction in the Conservative Party at the moment, I would quite like to keep my powder dry and get a better sense of who my colleagues are, I think. Like, yeah, I would not want to run my candidate because, you know, you only really want to do that at a certain point if you're as certain as you can be that you're going to win. And I'm not sure any faction or any candidate can do that at the moment. Again, because the party is so large and the kind of 2019 intake is still relatively unknowable. MPs in places where house prices are lower have belatedly realised that their constituents will be left with a lot less after paying their care costs because of the way that the £86,000 cap, which they're bringing in for social care, is going to work. Are Red Wall MPs especially fed up about that? So I've not, um, cards on the table, I've not spoken very specifically about this to um, any specifically Red Wall MPs. But I think on a, on a more general point, there's a bit of a, you know, was that really funny tweet again of them? Um, I never thought the leopards would eat my faces, um, said the woman who voted for the leopard eating faces party. Um, so that, I think there's there's a bit of that where they're like, oh, oh, so Boris Johnson and the Conservative, Conservative Party don't seem to hugely always care about people who are low paid. And it's like, oh, oh, is that so? Wonderful, tremendous. I had no idea. Yeah, so I do, I do think there's, yeah, that they're not especially happy and they don't necessarily feel that uh, Boris is keeping all his promises. But yeah, I mean, again, you know, it, it'd take a heart of stone. Well, last week, of course, the Leeds leg of HS2 was cancelled. 
And the government says that this doesn't matter because the new rail plan will mean that there are improvements to trains in northern constituencies and HS2 wouldn't have come along for decades anyway and everyone should be happy about that. Has that claim landed, do you think? Weirdly, I would say mostly yes. Because, yeah, no, I, I think mostly yes, but also... I think quite a few of the... Yeah, I think you shouldn't forget as well that quite a lot of the Conservative MPs in that sort of bit of the world are the ones actually in the rural seats where HS2 would have gone through their seats, through their patches, without stopping. Um, and so their constituents were very cross. Um, and as a result, you know, they were not the biggest fans of HS2 anyway. So I reckon that weirdly that just about offsets the ones who are actually very angry about HS2. So I think that that's ended up, at least on the Conservative Party side, being kind of a net neutral. I hear there's also a lot of disquiet that people are still crossing the channel to claim asylum in the UK. 24,000 so far this year, of whom exactly five have been sent back to the EU. Priti Patel has mooted paying another country to house the processing facilities for these people. I hate using that word because processing facilities does imply that, you know, they, they are basically... They're not people. Some, no, no, they're, they're no, some something. going through some sort of um, animal processing facility. Yeah. So, But yes, but that apart, tell us about her plans and whether they have any chance of becoming reality. Well, so it was reported in the Times that... There was going to be a deal done with Albania in order to, within seven days of people arriving here, send them to Albania. And that's where the asylum claims would be dealt with. But then this was almost immediately and very strenuously denied by the Albanian foreign minister who said this is a load of fake news. So who knows on that front? It feels like this is something that's going to increase uh, over time. And it's tremendously worrying because, of course, like just from the level of people making an extraordinarily dangerous trip and inevitably people are going to die and we may not even know how many people do lose their lives in that crossing. And yet with the increasing pressures on the eastern border of the European Union, with uh, Belarus essentially using migrants as almost like a weapon in the situation, this feels uh, like it's going to be something that increases and increases over time. So clearly something has to be done about this situation because it feels unsustainable for just the people who are at the rough end of this, which is the asylum seekers themselves who are at such great risk from taking that journey. And I understand Brexit has actually made it more difficult to send people back to the EU as Priti Patel would like to do because we're no longer in the EU and so the paperwork and logistics are far more complicated and that's not at all what was intended, is it? I mean, I, to, be, to be honest, I did not know that uh, Brexit had changed the uh, ease or difficulty of this but can't say that I'm particularly surprised because uh, there seem to be relatively few things where we're like... Actually, now now that we've done Brexit, this is all a piece of piss. So Keir Starmer has said he'd he build HS2, and he had quite a good PMQs last week. He sounded much more fired up. Do you think people are starting to think of him as a future PM? Well, I mean, the, the polls would imply that that is at least closer to being the case than it has been. You know, over the past uh, little while, we've seen the first signs of a sustained, if slight, uh, Labour polling lead. I think uh, just before we began recording, a new one uh, came out that put uh, the Conservatives and Labour neck and neck on 37. And I, I certainly think that you know, th there's this way that we think about Boris Johnson of it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, well, Boris is extremely popular with the electorate and everything. And it, it doesn't really seem to be borne out by that much evidence. And therefore, 
I feel like it's actually quite flimsy. And the second that that narrative changes, uh, people's conception of him will change. And so certainly I don't think that he's anywhere near as unassailable as particularly certain sections of the media, uh, like claiming that he is. Uh, you know, we had, was it an express front page uh, the other day saying Boris is still a winner. And generally speaking, when you, when you have to say it, uh, <laughs> it doesn't uh, seem like it's that accurate. Um, but yes, so I think that our our current prime minister's position is considerably more precarious than a lot of people care to admit, and that the prospects of, I mean, it would still be likely a minority government and rely on confidence and supply or something like that. So it's still not a likely thing, but certainly the concept of Starmer becoming prime minister doesn't feel like an impossible thing. There was some better news for Johnson this week because Geordie Greek, the editor of the Daily Mail, was removed after the paper had started to become quite critical of Johnson. Presumably it will no longer be quite so critical of Johnson. Justin, were those two events related? It's tempting to think so. And I suspect Marie would have a more well-sourced view of this than I would. But personally, I doubt if it was that direct in terms of cause and effect. I mean, Greek's a funny character. Like He's never been fully in the pocket, as it were. Like he edited the mail on Sunday when that came out for Remain. And if Private Eye is to be believed with their reporting, he was always a sort of anti-Paul Dacre in terms of the mail ecosystem. And the mail generally is a weird beast. I mean, I'd imagine, I mean, in, in all sorts of ways, obviously, I'd imagine most listeners have similar views about it and view it as an unalloyed bad but it's always prided itself on this strange kind of sort of maverick independence and a sort of odd morality that I think it likes to think of itself as having. Now, that may all be part of a bigger power play to keep governments on their toes because you never know fully if you can rely on the mail and their support. But I I don't think it's ever gone full fantasy island as a paper in the way that, you know, as I hear says, the Express has, the Telegraph increasingly has or even parts of the spectator now frequently threatened to, which is not to say that I think it's some positive influence on British public life, but I think its relationship to power is often a bit more complicated than people on the left imagine it to be. The New European reported that Johnson had told a room full of mostly friendly journalists that he was experiencing buyer's remorse after his third marriage, and the paper's editor said he was briefly threatened with legal action over the report, but that seems to have been dropped. Do you think the arrival of a sibling for Wilfred this Christmas is going to bring more joy to the happy couple or will the second child have its usual effect on their relationship? Um, That whole story was really, really deeply strained. I mean, when I first read the New Europeans account of it, I thought it just sounds like they've been hoaxed. You know, it's like someone random has phoned them up at midnight on a Friday claiming to be from the number 10 comms office. Um, But obviously it turned out it seems there was more substance to it so yeah not a uh, not a comms masterclass from downing street there um as to the effect of the new arrival um i wouldn't want to speculate on what it will mean for matters domestic but i did have two thoughts firstly that just as when it's going right for you nothing sticks and this has always been you know the thing around johnston like you know he can do what he likes none of this stuff sticks to him he can just move through it Equally, when the mood is turning against you, you really can do whatever you like and it doesn't help. You know, we saw that towards the end with Major, with Brown, with May, when people smell blood, 
to some degree, that's it. You know, it doesn't really matter what you do. You can, you know, if we win the World Cup, or it, it won't help. But the arrival of a new Johnson underscores once again, and I'm aware I've mentioned this before, I sound like a bit of a stuck record, the absolute complete insanity of the fact that we simply do not know how many children the Prime Minister has or who he has them with or who's been looking after them for him, which is not just a matter of prurience and curiosity amongst political types. It means that we literally have no idea if any government appointment, payment, contract is going to someone who is involved with the PM by a birth relation. I mean, that, that strikes me as an absolutely insane state of affairs. But because it's Johnson and it's only about seventh on the list of extremely weird things about him, like when his dad turns up on programmes, it's like, can you imagine in, say, Tony Blair's day, if Blair had sent his dad onto Newsnight to talk on his behalf? I mean, it would have just been absolutely fantastical. But um, anyway, I mean, Johnson seemed to have finally confirmed last week in an interview with NBC that he already has six children. But quite frankly, how would you know? And who would you believe in that case? Can I just say, uh, Roz, uh, when you said, like, or will the arrival of a second child do what it normally does to relationships? And just like, as a second child, since you said that, I've been like, what, what does she mean? What happens? What did I do to mum and dad? <laughs> well, all it means here is that, let's put it this way, you, you have slightly less time of the time you previously had, which was very little, to devote to the state of your <laughs> relationship and keeping it in any sense alive. And so, you know, for the next decade or so, you know, you're you're basically you're basically screwed in terms of um, having much private life. Um, so that that I, was merely what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the actual child. I think that you know the the child children. I'm sure will be absolutely fine. But um, so basically, what, what, you're, what you're saying what you're saying is I cock blocked my parents for a decade. Is essentially, <laughs> yeah, what quite quite, pro- quite probably. Although you know, <laughs> it, I, I can't say. It may be that they. Uh, I mean, did they have another child after you were here? No, no. Oh, well, maybe they, maybe that, perhaps that's absolutely right. And you were the final <laughs> I just really, really hope that Mr. and Mrs. Shah are not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It turns out uh, that not only have some MPs been earning lots on the side from second jobs, which we knew about, but they've managed to avoid paying higher rate tax on them. How does that work, Justin? Yeah, so this is about people using personal companies to avoid higher rates of tax. So this was followed, there was an investigation by the Times finding multiple MPs were paid in total around a million pounds via the arrangement. So how it works, uh, caveat that I'm not a tax professional and I'm simplifying quite heavily here, is that rather than paying 45% tax on payments directly to yourself, the company that money is paid to, which essentially can be you in all but name, pays corporation tax at 19%. When you then draw the money out of the company, either as income tax or a dividend, you pay up to the rate, which then goes up to 32.5%. So it's essentially a spin on what a lot of, shall we say, media professionals do, where rather than getting paid a big lump sum for a job when you might have a quiet month following, you just pay yourself out what you need to keep yourself below a certain tax threshold. Again, it's not an uncommon practice, but I think when it's being done so blatantly by MPs who are earning good money already and in the current climate, it's obviously um, sticking in people's throats a bit more. Yeah, I mean, when you've got a full-time job already, yeah, it does stick in the crawl somewhere. What are our thoughts about a lockdown before Christmas? 
Do I began to fear that there may be some sort of de facto lockdown in the next few weeks. Does anybody else share that fear or are you fairly confident that we can avoid it? I don't think so at all. What was so impressive and I think surprised everyone, like including the government uh, in 2020, was the degree of public buy-in to the lockdown, particularly uh, the first one at first. And uh, I just don't think that that level of buy-in is going to exist in the same way now. Yeah, it is hard to imagine when you basically have to blame the unvaccinated, which which is going to create all kinds of divisions. Marie, what's your feeling? Oh, um, my only point was going to be that I'm turning 30 um, at the end of next month and I'm having a big party in early January. So I will just become a freeman of the land if there's a <laughs> this is it i will have yeah magna carta the whole lot like th- this will be my joker moment uh if i can't have my 30th so this is my warning formally to the government <laughs> there's a well, marie i had yeah. i had my 30th during a lockdown during the the winter lockdown at the end of 2020 and uh i, I ate a pizza in the bath and it was lovely uh, (laughs) Well, I hope none of you will be inviting kids to your dues because I was reading in the New York Times the other day that if you're going to have a family gathering this Christmas and you've got vulnerable elderly people there, you should basically make the kids eat their dinner up really fast and uh, in another room so that, you know, they don't they don't have any chance of passing on the infection. Isn't that just the secret for a happy, harmonious Christmas Day full stop? Well, this happened, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I went over to my parents' house, and my sister and her husband were coming as well, and my dad was like, uh, my sister's pregnant, and so my dad was like, I've got a bit of a cough, it's not COVID, I did a lateral flow, but I still don't want to give your sister anything, so I'll sit in the other room while you guys are having lunch, and he was just sat in the other room just watching the cricket and eating lunch on his own, and I was like, you planned this, like, (laughs) you prefer this way of doing things. With the unemployment rate so low and people choosing to retire early or quit their jobs, you'd think it was a good time to be a university graduate just entering the job market. But you'd be wrong. Over 90 applicants are applying for every position and there's a backlog of unemployed grads from last year, creating a massive scramble for jobs. Podmasters producer Yelena Sofronievich has been investigating what it's like out there for the Tortoise website. Yelena, what is students' mental health like after 18 months of Zooms? Yeah, so when we first reported this piece, this was back in March and the piece came out in May, uh, and we really found that COVID had basically just exposed an existing crisis in wellbeing on campuses. So most students really struggled throughout the lockdown, but that's also not to homogenise what is a very diverse student experience and has different elements to it that include academic life, your social life, your, uh, your economic income. And different people have experienced the pandemic very differently. So actually, some students really did benefit from going online, especially international ones. But as I said, the institutional response to COVID has really just exposed and exacerbated a lot of existing inequalities between students and across campuses. Because ultimately, students are only students for a few years. Most unis take a very short term view of their duty of care and similarly to their mental health and well-being remit. So the article was kind of sparked when I received a graduate email that said that my university really cared about uh, its graduates' well-being and ensuring that they had spaces in the job market. And their summary of support was a six-step guide to mindful doodling, which was very helpful when I was frantically looking for work this time last year. Do the students feel ready to go out into the job market, do you think? Uh, No, I don't think they do. But as I said, I think that's 
again, an existing problem because ever since the kind of 80s and 90s, as universities and other educational institutions have been commodified, unis have kind of been marketed as a space where you go to get a job, not necessarily just because you're interested in academia. And occupying that weird kind of liminal space means that unis aren't quite as meritocratic as you think. It's no longer sufficient just to have a degree to get a job. Um, It's interesting recently as well, another study has found that poor university graduates still get 50% of a lower income in their first graduate job than their wealthier counterparts because they often lack the social connections to get their first job out of uni. So if anything, the pandemic has just exposed that university is a place you're told to, that you need to go to to get a job, And then you can go there and still not get a job. We're doing a piece at the moment, a follow-up one that will hopefully come out in the next few weeks about blended learning. And again, it just exposes how universities, whether it's pandemic times or not, really need to get their acts together when it comes to long-term planning for grads. Marie, that problem of graduates from poorer backgrounds earning about half of what people from more privileged backgrounds do. Employers talk the talk about making recruitment colour and gender blind, but they haven't been good at tackling that have they they have not and i i wonder if the solution could not just be as simple as properly paid internships offered by most workplaces because i do think that again um you know people who do have either the family connections or even just on a basic level can afford to basically have mum and dad subsidizing their lifestyle for six months or whatever while they do internships kind of try to figure out what to do are always going to be luckier than the people who can't do that so i think that if there could be a complete cultural change on this of saying actually most companies will offer sort of like three months, let's say, you know, internships paid more than the London living wage, I suspect that would massively help. A, because, you know, people from non-traditional backgrounds could get a bit, you know, their foot in the door and a better sense of what they want to do. But even also, I think just it's about developing the contacts as well. I know that I basically got into journalism out of sheer luck because I managed to start doing shifts at random newspapers. And just from there, like, you know, any kind of invite to the pub, any any sort of friendly chat, I turned into, you know, you're my friend now. You do not have a choice. And that's kind of how I got in. So I think being able to offer people that when they don't have it because of, again, their family or their background would probably go a long way, I think. I hear if universities ever done a good job, enough job of preparing finalists for the job market. Well, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I can only know my own experience. And I was at university between 2009 and 2012 and did a social sciences course and I'm now a clown. Uh, So I wasn't particularly uh, prepared uh, for that via the degree as such. Uh, But I don't know. I I, I kind of worry about the the premise on one hand, because the, the other thing has become now that sort of we've so fully commodified tertiary education, that everything sort of gets seen as like vocational and this must be done for the job market seems seems a bit of a shame to not have a view of education for its sake but obviously that is a thing that one can say if one doesn't have to do the nine thousand pound a year things with 6.3 percent interest rates or whatever it is for young people nowadays so i think that that's the shit like perhaps they don't do a good enough job of preparing finalists for the job market it's also a shame that we put uh young people you know in many ways making 17 year olds enter into these extraordinary uh financial commitments that mean they really have to regard their degree as something that will enter them well into the job market there's a bit of a narrative among boomers and gen x's that younger people expect too much from work 
Yeah, that they they expect it to be too much fun. You see this kind of thing cropping up in places like the FT and the Times in worried columns. You know, sometimes it's that they want flexible working, especially after the pandemic. Other times it's that they don't tolerate aspects of office life that older generations just put up with or even encouraged. Is that justified? Do you think? Well, this is such like it. It's it seems all part of the sort of never did me any harm uh, school of thought. My dad was hit all the time as a kid, uh, and he was like, "Well, I'll never do that to my children because it di- it it didn't really do me any long term harm, but it was horrible." So I've I've decided that I'm not going to uh, recreate that. But of course, it's just a. Uh, Another another stick to beat millennials and will now be a stick to beat Gen Zers with. So the Gen Zers have taken that off my hands at least, uh, and I'm sure that I will be just as curmudgeonly a few decades from now, where I'm complaining about that all of oh my grandkids demand to work from space, and in my day you didn't have to do that. You content going into the office twice a week, and you now no, they're all like Dad, I want to work on Saturn. <laughs> Marie, last month you confessed in a column that you just didn't want to work. Um, do you think younger people are more open about feeling like that? Ooh, very possibly. I mean, I, I'm still actually wondering, I think, you know, whether that really was a good idea to write something like that very publicly, which then went viral, which usually, again, I'd be really happy with something over it going viral. But uh, me saying I don't want to work, then being publicised again and again and again to all my potential future employers I was like oh what was that a clever thing that I did anyway um <laughs> I assumed it was just a stealth move you know <laughs> <laughs> um I, I I do hope so and I think so I wonder as well and this is a complete like this is just a very random theory and it may well be completely fake but during the various lockdowns I watched quite a lot of old tv shows from the kind of 90s and stuff and what really struck me with them is that they basically, so like young, youngish people in all those shows, so, you know, be that Sex in the City, Seinfeld, etc., never really talk about their jobs massively. And then I kind of compared that to the stuff I not quite grew up with, with the stuff I've been watching in, let's say, the past decade, where I think all the characters always, you know, everything revolves around their job and also their identity revolves around their job entirely. So, yes, and I wonder, it's basically, if, if it's not a thing that comes in waves, I suppose, where now the kind of new generation just about is that actually, no, we don't want that. We do not want to be defined entirely by our work. Um, and as a result, you know, it, it would feel easier for them to say, actually, you know, I didn't even really like working. This is not a thing I enjoy doing. I just do it because I have bills to pay and that's that. So, so yeah, so I wonder if there's maybe a shift around kind of work and identity. Yeah, on that subject, Justin, I was thinking one of the things that surprises me when I interview or talk to Gen Zers at work is how extremely competent and well-versed many are in what employers need and want, far more so than I was at that age. Yet at the same time, this is a generation that's acutely conscious of neurodiversity and the value of difference. How does that fit together? I think it's two things. I mean, I've done quite a lot of research work over the last couple of years around this for different clients. And I think we've got two things. There's firstly that I think a lot of young people are just less invested in work. You know, I don't, I think often they don't view it as so intrinsic to their identity in the way that probably I do or, you know, my age group did. I think partly because they know it's a much more temporary thing. You know, they know it's much more transient. They know that the job for life has gone completely. So I think they view it, they're much more sort of expedient about just going, well, okay, look, I can just portray myself as this for the sake of a short-term job and then, you know, move on. And they don't see that as some huge personal compromise. But I think stepping back a bit, I think what you've got now is a generation who are generalizing here, but I think are 
acutely aware of not just the power of identity, but also the value of their identity. And what I mean by that is they know that they're constantly being surveilled and marketed to, often by fairly bad actors, and they're very aware of this. And that depending on how they choose to deploy it, their identity and persona is potentially extremely valuable to extremely vested interests. So they don't have any of that utopian view that maybe millennials and my generation did about the you know the power of sort of digital culture. And I think they see it as something much more transactional. So I think they're much more confident just saying, look, I'll deploy this identity here, this identity here, and the two don't necessarily cannibalise each other. Is there a cost to that, maintaining different personas and different aspects of your life? There is in some ways, and I think there would be for people probably like me, you know, it's kind of the mask that eats the face because someone of my age probably has a much more linear view of these things. You need to be very gifted at it. And I think if you're someone who was born when I was, where you'd largely formed your identity before everything went online, you're always going to feel at some level an instinctive divide between, say, like real life and online space, you know, metaverse and meat space, whatever you want to term it. But I think for young people who fully came of age through a completely online culture, the idea that you can adopt different personas is not just useful, but if I was going to be really high blown about it, it's almost a kind of political resistance. So if you know that companies and manipulators and brands, you know that Cambridge Analytica want your ID and want to know everything about you so they can make money out of you, market you in an extremely egregious way, then undermining that identity and deploying four or five different personas online is really, really powerful. And it's one of the only ways you've got of actually clawing back some control from these things. So here, is that something you recognise? I mean, I I would love to think that uh, my online persona or personas are an elaborate political act. Uh, I just don't think I've ever put that much thought into any of it. Uh, but certainly it, it might it might express uh, so it, it might excuse uh, the erratic nature of my Netflix uh, usage. I, I, don't, I don't think you should undermine your appearances in Fortnite where you're patrolling the metaverse dressed as a giant besequined dragon quite so lightly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've seen you in there. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, the pandemic sort of showed us how vital carers and NHS workers are. And you'd think that would mean that jobs like that carried more prestige than they used to. And that people would be happier to do them perhaps more willing to do them for the low wages that they offer. Do you think that's beginning to happen in the job market? Not especially, no. I mean, there was a report in Nursing Times this week where calls were made for an investigation into large numbers of nurses joining the UK Nursing and Midwifery Register from countries that are on what the World Health Organisation terms the red list. And these are countries where active recruitment should not be used uh, for a variety of reasons, but particularly because those countries' own health infrastructures are shaky enough that suddenly pulling a load of the staff out is going to threaten them quite seriously. Despite that, we've still got enough of a shortfall in our labour market around medicine that 1,500 nurses have joined the UK register in the last six months, all from red list countries. And that's places like about 1,300 from Nigeria, about 330 from Ghana. There's a good reason why they advise and request countries not to go and scout medical staff from these places. But the government has set this target where they said they're going to deliver 50,000 new nurses by 2024. And as has been the case across multiple sectors at the moment, we're essentially just seeing these crunch points emerging where we have a low birth rate, 
a dwindling young population, young active workforce population at exactly the same time as we've cut off the supply of the people who would be most likely to come here and undertake those kind of service jobs. There was probably some shift at the start of lockdown where people thought, you know, I'd like to, my old job isn't going to exist anymore. I'd like to do something more worthwhile. I think we've probably mainly snapped back into what we were doing originally. Um, And so they're having to plug the gaps from other places. I hear now that you are a successful comedian, 30, being fated by Sadiq Khan. What would you (laughs) tell your newly graduated self? Uh, I would tell my newly graduated self very many things and I would hope that he'd listen, but fear that he wouldn't. Yelena, thanks very much for telling us the insights you've found there and the piece will be coming out and taught us in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. On the face of it, it's not surprising that a nation told to stay at home for months on end decided that getting a pet would cheer them up. Never mind that dog walking is not an official excuse to break self-isolation, dogs and cats have undoubtedly helped some people stay sane. In fact, there are 3.2 million more of them in the UK since March 2021, nearly all of them living in my street. In fact, I can hear a distant barking right now. But how are you going to cut your carbon footprint when you've just bought an animal whose meat habit pollutes as much as an SUV? Ahir, do you have a tame creature living Cheshire? I do not, personally, but my sister and brother-in-law are one of these people uh, you described who bought uh, their dog during lockdown. So he joined the family in the summer of 2020. His name is Peanut and he is wonderful. So I'm, I'm very happy that he's there. But we didn't, we, we never had any animals growing up uh, because my mother was both terrified of all animals and I think quite reasonably uh, realised that in the final instance, she would be the one who had to do most of the taking care. But now that uh, they have Peanut, uh, she has become extraordinarily enamoured with him extraordinarily quickly. And so a bit of me is like, no, I wish that that had happened like 25 years ago. And then for my childhood, I'd have had a little birdie. Oh, I'll give you two years before you you get one. Yeah. (laughs) Marie, is this an aspect of British life that you've embraced? Um, I have, although, I mean... I kind of object to the premise a bit. You know, I would say that I grew up in France. We, we have pets there as well. Like you, you don't have a monopoly, I think, on, on loving pets. But um, uh, No, yeah, no, you know, we, we love them more than other people do. No, we do. <laughs> now, aren't you not? I feel like Britain, isn't it? Like, isn't your thing that you're weird about donkeys? Isn't like donkey sanctuaries are like the best funded thing in the entire country? Like every donkey is a billionaire <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we don't we don't eat them, no. <laughs> Is that delicious though? Yeah, sorry, yeah, that's the French thing coming out, but yeah. Um, but yes, you know, big fan of, uh, of animals that I eat and animals that I do not. Justin, Rachel Cunliffe pointed out in the News Statesman this week that dogs do occasionally kill people, usually children. Do we do enough to make that clear to the owners? Well, I wouldn't have thought people should really need reminding that something which is an extremely close cousin of the wolf. <laughs> in the right circumstances. But I've got to, you know, as someone who I make a lot of my living from work around kind of brand communications and marketing, I can see why Battersea Dogs Home kind of soft soft soap that element of the dog adoption experience. I mean, I think they have enough trouble shifting these things off their books anyway, without also saying to people, by the way, can you just sign this disclaimer so if someone gets mauled by Fido in the next week when a firework goes off near him, uh, you won't <laughs> have to sue us into the Stone Age. So, um, 
yes, I I think this is one where the the onus is on the owners. Like, if you don't understand what a dog is capable of, you haven't spent very long near a dog. I hear I don't like dogs. This is a terrible thing to say in England, I realise. And I'm no good at faking affection for them either. I mean, cats are a different matter, obviously. They're, they're just gorgeous. But what's the correct reflex when a dog runs towards me, tail wagging? Because at the moment, I tend to say, no, thank you, stiffly, and sort of back away. <laughs> when in fact, I just want to kick it. But of course, I can't. That would be appalling. But, you know, what should I do? I really like the implication that you say no thank you in exactly that tone to the dog and expect them to understand uh, what you're saying. No, I think that, look, your your position seems to be identical to the position that my mother had until uh, just over a year ago. Uh, so these things can change over time. That's something that I've learned. But I think it definitely depends on the the sort of dog, right? Like, I think that if a sort of relatively little thing is bounding up to you and being all fluffy and whatnot, you might be like, oh, it's a bit annoying, but you're not going to be, well, or many people, some people obviously do have phobias of these things, but uh, you'll be, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm broadly fond of dogs, but if one of the ones that we were discussing that fully like kills people started bounding up towards me, I would also be like, right, we're getting out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Justin, is there an overlooked cruelty about pet ownership? Yuval Noah Harari argues in his book Sapiens that we will look back on animal domestication as we do slavery. Has he got a point? Um, It's an interesting thought experiment. And, you know, you think the more we learn about animal sentience and, you know, non-human thought, theoretically, I suppose it is very, very possible. On the other hand, I look at the life that my two enormous constantly furious Persian rescue cats had where they were essentially plucked from a really disgusting illegal breeding program in a garage in Essex and proceeded to live the absolute life of Riley in southwest London where their life basically involved eating me out of house and home eating my neighbours out of house and home after just letting themselves into their flats and helping themselves to whatever was on the table and then um cover your ears, children, taking such enormous toxic shits in my neighbour's garden. <laughs> we actually received an official complaint at my building's AGM, where obviously when the complaint came in, I denied that my cats were anything to do with this whatsoever. They said, we've got a very, very detailed description of them, which was two huge flat-faced Persian cats, one cream, one grey and white, always travelling in a pair, always going over the wall at the same time. And I effectively turned into one of those mothers who, when their son has turned up at school with a stupid haircut and threatened a teacher, goes straight up the school, defends them to the hill, denies any wrongdoing, and is generally an absolute pain in the arse on their behalf. So... While I take uh, Mr. Harari's theoretical point that they may be living in a kind of, you know, feline update of gone with the wind in this sort of terrifying antebellum life, uh, the evidence (laughs) as presented to me by the way the cats lived and how they behaved and how they conducted themselves makes me think they probably were quite enjoying it. And can I just uh, say quickly on that one as well? I think that, like, uh, Harari's point is probably sort of 
exaggeratedly hyperbolic in order to shock. But I think, like, seems like because yes, for example, Little Peanut is a descendant of wolves going all the way back, but he's not anymore, right? Like his species, is, he'd be utterly useless as a wolf now uh, and everything. Like if you just put him on the street, like he wouldn't be able to deal with that sort of thing. Whereas when people were enslaved, they didn't stop being people uh, at any stage, right? And that was the that was the greatest crime of it. So are you saying here that it's okay to breed creatures that cannot survive on their own for our pure enjoyment? Because, I mean, but that's the logical... Peanut's having a lovely time. He's having a lovely time. He lives better than most people. Marie, the birth rate is down in England and Wales, and by even more in Scotland. And we do increasingly coddle pets. Some people even want to bring them into the workplace, which when I think about how much I've spent on childcare over the past 13 years, does make me fume somewhat. But does it make sense to have a pet when having kids is so expensive and often screws up your career? Is it the option that makes sense for now? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can absolutely see it. And I think that quite a lot of people, because, you know, we, we talk a lot about people having kids older and older and older. And I'm sure, you know, in some cases, that is because people just generally want to have kids when they're older. But, you know, looking anecdotally kind of around me, I feel like I certainly know some people, some couples who would like to have kids now in their kind of late 20s, very early 30s, but just could not do it financially or because, you know, they're renting, etc. or their jobs are not stable. It kind of feels like the next best thing, I think, for quite a lot of people, which, you know, I, I'm not fundamentally against as long as they treat the pets well um, and they didn't get rid of the pets once they get a human child instead, uh, then, yeah, why not? <laughs> which animal would you own if you could, sort of Tiger King style? Oh, any animal? Yeah, any animal or insect. Because I did think, so like, I, I can't remember when, but I did have this like lengthy obsession where I was like, if, if I could, you know, live in some sort of sci-fi world, I <laughs> this is going to sound insane. I'm very sorry. Um, I would love to breed a giant bumblebee and have it as a pet. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea. I think it's just one night I couldn't sleep and it popped into my head and it became this thing I just think about whenever I couldn't sleep, which is most nights, just having a giant bumblebee kind of like flying around my flat and being quite cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> Cuddly. And do you think that you'd be able to, like, jump on the back of the bumblebee and, like, ride around? So I'd not thought of that. And I were like, this is the next six months of insomnia now. Like, this is it. Thank you. <laughs> right. Justin, how about you? Uh, I think I'd go for a three-toed sloth, which could basically just hang out in the, the wet room, my bathroom. You could just hang out in the shower. It's quite nice and <laughs> a bit tropical in there. And mainly just so if any visitors were around, you know, just the element of surprise when they turn the lights on and, <laughs> and, and just there dozing away upside down, all covered in moss and, you know, moths or whatever. Um, I think because what I realised when, because I said I had Persian cats, which because they're very weak hearts and essentially are inbred to a horrific degree, they sleep for about 23 hours a day. They can't really do anything. And there's something profoundly relaxing about sharing your living space with someone that does absolutely nothing the entire time. Um, There's quite a sort of zen, it has a sort of quite a profound halo effect on the rest of the room. So, yeah, I think... And you know, when uh, I use that as an excuse, I'm told that I need to be working harder. <laughs> and, uh... Of course, when you had a shower, you would have to take the sloth out of the shower, presumably when you were naked, and, you know, trying to grapple with this creature that you were getting... I can see that being potentially problematic. I think you could just leave... Ros- I don't think a sloth is going to suddenly come at you in a... It's not... <laughs> not sharp claws. It, it's not a rat. It's not, it's not a squirrel or something. It's like, I suspect it wouldn't even wake up. It would just sort of, like, you know, chew some eucalyptus leaves or something and uh 
those off. But um, yeah, that would be my uh, that would be my house, my animal housemate of choice in this sort of island of Doctor Moreau fantasy world. <laughs> uh, here, if you didn't have uh, Peanut to uh, keep you uh, happy and uh, occupied, uh, what animal would you have? The thing, I'm, I mean, I'm shamelessly getting on board with the gigantic bumblebee. I think that that's a fantastic <laughs> decision. And I too will be thinking about that for a very long time. I just think, like, I think of, we'd both, like, I'd be flying around on the bumblebee's back and we'd both have a sort of grin where we look really happy at the world and ourselves. <laughs> and we'd just be like, do, 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 and be like, do a little bumblebee song. It'd be sick because also you can just tell they're soft. Like, is it even the current yeah. size they are? You kind of do want to pet them with like maybe your little finger. Like they look really soft. So yeah, it'd be delightful. This has turned into a sort of cryptozoological version of the Neverending Story. Both <laughs> <laughs> good and bad. Sometimes you could meet up on your bumblebees and have you know special yeah. adventures together. In fact, it's basically an entire children's program, isn't it? We could solve yeah. crimes, Marie. That's all I want. I'll leave a paddling pool full of sugary water out in case they're arriving at any point. Again, amazingly whimsical. Just there are no downsides at all whatsoever to this. (laughs) Well, I'm just delighted to have been on a podcast that has produced this this fever of imagination. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's now time for Escape Routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have taken our panellists' minds away from the bruising world of politics? Justin, what have you been watching, doing, reading? Uh, I was a little late to this, but I'm about halfway through and enormously enjoying Phil Harrison's book uh, called The Age of Static. And it's essentially how the last 20 years of television and especially reality television has sort of shaped and formed uh, modern culture and modern politics as we know it. And it's brilliantly written. It's really, it's that sort of interesting point of stuff that you remember seeing first time around, like, you know, the beginning of Big Brother and things suddenly being recontextualized as history. But he's got that real gift for taking a load of things that you kind of had a slightly unformed idea about like you know i don't think reality tv was great for this country the apprentice led to some really bad stuff and then he actually really fleshes out the argument and he's done all the research and it's a really elegantly argued very very smart book about some very very dumb television murray how about you um, so I have finally started watching this very little known, uh, very obscure TV show called Succession. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but yeah, turns yeah, out it's good. <laughs> yeah, no, it turns out it's one of those. Where it's like, oh, yeah, fine. Turns out every single one of my friends was correct. And this is <laughs> a very enjoyable show. But yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, I, I, I'm having a slight sort of like existential crisis due to the fact that I really fancy both Shiv and Roman, but also really identify with Shiv and Roman. Um weird, so, yeah. So yes, I'm having having a bit of a weird time with that. But apart from that, I'm yeah enjoying it. <laughs> I'm the only person I know who doesn't like Succession. It's terrible. I, wow. I find it just irrepressible, incredibly bleak. And I, I don't. Yeah, I, it's. Ter- I've tried tried very hard to appreciate it, but I can't. It's terrible. Here, how about you? Well, I'll I'll have a highbrow answer and a lowbrow answer. So my highbrow answer is I've finally started reading uh, Dominion, which is Tom Holland's sort of uh, history of Christianity, which is absolutely fascinating and well-written and I highly recommend. But I even more highly recommend 
Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> available on Now TV. Uh, my sister put me onto it uh, a few days ago. She texted me saying, I've started watching this thing and you have to start watching this thing. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's incredible. It's like rubbing McDonald's directly onto your brain matter. Uh, I was like, okay, well, that sounds fantastic. And I watched it and it is every bit as glorious as you think. Like, it's... It's like, imagine if the Da Vinci Code was much more dumb. Like, it's, <laughs> it's high quality stuff. It's Well, now that Jürgen has left Bake Off, there is no point really in watching the final. So that was a tragedy. But the other thing I've been listening to is the BBC podcast, Things Fall Apart, John Ronson's. Uh, podcast which is really excellent and the origins of the culture wars and in fact we are talking to john ronson on the sister podcast oh god what now next week so look out for that and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to justin quirk thanks for having me ross mary leconte thanks for having me and to our here shah thank you we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and a full-length show this time next week and we'll be back with a new culture bunker on saturday Remember, if you liked this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right here in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will earn our gratitude and a shout out at the end of the podcast. To wit, here are this week's. Hello, and many thanks from me to Howard Scully, Dalman, and Dave Glencross. Best wishes from me to Aaron Walker, Max, and Rusty Halbert. All the best from me to Andy Hunter, Rob Lindsay, and Gavin Bennett. And many thanks from me to Chapper Happer, Aaron Duddy, and Sharon Wooden. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Marie LeConte, Justin Quirk, Ahir Shah, and Yelna Sofronievich. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>